Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm William McAdam, and today I'm sitting down with 9Fin's senior legal consultant, Freddie Dowst, and South Square's Riz Mokal to talk about cross-border recognition. Thanks to both of you for coming on today. But before we get into our discussion, Riz, please could you tell us a bit about your career and what you do at South Square? My position at South Square started on a full-time basis in 2016. I have a practice which takes uh, in all aspects of insolvency, restructuring, trust law, bank resolution, financial institution distress, um, and everything which might arise in the context of an insolvency. I have had uh, effectively had two careers before. I started off as an academic. I was professor at University College London for several years. And in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2009, I went to Washington DC to take up a position as the senior counsel to the World Bank and the head of the bank's global insolvency initiative advising the member governments of the World Bank on reforming their insolvency and creditor-debtor regimes. And Freddie? Well, nothing like as impressive as Riz, I'm afraid, but um, yeah, thank you. I, uh, hi, everyone. Good to be um, back on the podcast. Um, I'm a restructuring insolvency lawyer. Um, I trained at Weill Gottschall, spent several years at Link Motors after that, acting for companies, creditors, funds, insolvency practitioners. Um, across a range of situations before coming across to Ninefin in September last year to focus on distress and restructuring, content, editorial, analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, good to be here. Great to have you both. Before we get into the broader conversation, I wanted to summarize our thesis for this podcast and explain why cross-border recognition has become a bit of a hot-button topic worthy of a pod discussion. With our conversation here, we'll focus on international restructuring processes, namely English schemes of arrangement and English restructuring plans, but we'll also cover some of the European processes as well as um, US processes. Now, without going into too much detail, cross-border recognition is the process by which a judgment sanctioning a restructuring deal in one country is affirmed, or at least there's sufficient evidence that such a judgment would be affirmed under the laws of another country. Now, obviously, international restructurings are invariably complex transactions. Rescuing a company requires delicate negotiations between various stakeholders with disparate incentives, a process which can take many months to complete. Today, large international groups tend to make use of restructuring processes, usually will have assets and operations spread across countries and continents. Now, that means that they need to be certain that the process they're using to restructure their liabilities is likely to be acknowledged and recognised. For decades, the UK's toolkit has remained broadly the same. Schemes of arrangement have a, have a healthy body of case law in England and abroad, which makes them a reliable tool to implement cross-border restructurings. Restructuring plans are comparatively new though, but do have significant advantages. For reasons we'll delve into in this podcast, they're likely to be treated slightly different to schemes when it comes to international recognition. Just to mention, we'll be referring to restructuring plans generically throughout this pod, but when we refer to the English process, we'll try and clarify that with the UK restructuring plan to avoid confusion. Now, we've seen a number of high-profile and contentious UK restructuring plans go before the English courts as of late, with German real estate giant Adler and energy service firm McDermott being the foremost examples. In the latter, questions of international recognition of the deal are likely to be front and center at its sanction hearing, which is expected on 8th February. We'll dive into what that means today as well, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I've just kind of given a bit of a high level intro there. 
Um, and it'd be great, Riz, if you could just sort of uh, build on that explanation um, and sort of give us a bit of context on what we mean by recognition. Yes, of course. Recognition would arise in the context of cross-border restructurings. Take the example of a debtor company which has assets based in one jurisdiction, let's say Germany, and which has its headquarters in another jurisdiction, let's say England. And suppose that the debtor comes to the English court to restructure some of its debts. Um, by way of a transaction by which it gets additional time to pay and in return the affected creditors get an additional interest or other benefits. In this sort of situation it's going to be possible for some creditors who are unhappy with the process to go to Germany and seek to enforce against the assets of the debtor on the basis that their claims have remained unaffected by the order given by the English court providing for the debt agreements to be amended. In those sort of scenarios, it is vital that the German courts recognize, that is, acknowledge the legal effectiveness of the order given by the English court so as to accept that it is no longer possible for the unhappy creditors to enforce their claims as if they remained unaffected by the restructuring in England. So recognition is the process by which a legal event which has occurred in a different jurisdiction is given effectiveness or its effectiveness is acknowledged in this jurisdiction. Hmm. And if you could then kind of build upon why recognition is quite important, um, first of all, for debtors when they propose a plan, but then also for the English courts when they're determining whether or not to sanction a scheme or plan. Yes. So those are, as you may imagine, overlapping issues. Debtors would wish to maximize the efficacy of the restructuring, say that they want additional time to repay certain of their debt obligations, the debt obligations which they seek to have restructured. And they expect to be able to get a majority by value, but not all of the holders of that category of debt to sign on to the amendments proposed by way of the restructuring. Now, they would want to ensure, the debtors would want to ensure in that scenario that the restructuring is immune to free riders, unhappy creditors seeking to go to another jurisdiction, as I said in the example I gave a minute ago, where, for example, the debtor's assets are located, and seek to enforce unamended claims against the debtor. So from the very practical point of view, recognition would be important for the debtor in ensuring that value is not lost to these free-riding unhappy creditors. It's also going to be the case that the greater the risk of this sort of free-riding of unhappy creditors going to a different jurisdiction and being successful in enforcing unamended claims, the less likely it is that any creditors in that class would vote for the restructuring in the first place. Imagine yourself in the position of a latter such creditor. You are willing 
to accept uh, sacrifice uh, additional time before you are repaid, but only if all other creditors holding the same type of claim that you do are similarly required to make the sacrifice. The greater the likelihood that some such creditors will be able to free ride on your sacrifice by obtaining repayment on unamended terms earlier than you, the less the incentive for you to accept the additional time before you are repaid. That's the very pragmatic perspective of the debtor. From the English court's point of view, there is a long established doctrine of English law to the effect that the English court does not act in vain. That is to say, the English court treats the orders that it may make and expects others to treat such orders with the seriousness that such orders demand and that requires the English court to be satisfied that the order were want to be made would not merely be moot, it would not merely be an academic exercise, but would have material efficacy and effect as the English court expects it to. Now, the greater the need for a, a English court's order sanctioning a restructuring to be recognized in a different jurisdiction, the more important it will be for the English court to receive evidence and be satisfied that if it does make such an order, that order would be recognized and given due effect in that foreign jurisdiction. So that's the relevance of recognition for the English court when it is considering whether to give sanction to a restructuring. We can, we can perhaps go back to the kind of level of evidence which the court needs to be satisfied that um, the proceedings will be recognised in a foreign jurisdiction. But I, I thought, particularly seeing as we're going to touch on this in, in a second, we should perhaps just pause on the, the fact that um, it's not necessarily the case that if you can't get recognition, um, there will inevitably be a challenge in the foreign jurisdiction. The, the, the middle ground is parallel proceedings. So... I suppose that for debtors, um, having separate parallel proceedings rather than automatic recognition in the foreign jurisdiction is uh, can cause kind of confusion, right? And it's and it's it's kind of and also potentially other kind of undesirable consequences. So um, it will also add, I suppose, to kind of the time and the cost, etc. So um, even if it's not that you've got kind of a a kind of creditor who's dissenting, challenging in a foreign jurisdiction. The middle ground of parallel proceedings is also not particularly an ideal scenario. I entirely agree. So let's, you have articulated uh, persuasively the costs and risks involved with parallel proceedings. Let me say something about the potential benefits. If it is the case that there is sufficient value in play in this particular restructuring to make it worthwhile for the stakeholders to bear the costs, including time, but of course also the financial costs, to go to two or more jurisdictions and seek um, sanction from the court of each of those jurisdictions of uh, restructuring, which is all part of a broader restructuring of the obligations of the data. If there is sufficient value at play and it is worth the while of the stakeholders, then that is excellent. And 
in many cases, and we've seen some striking instances over the last year, 18 months, parallel proceedings can be a powerful and valuable tool. But I have to agree with you that other things equal, stakeholders would wish to avoid parallel proceedings because they introduce these additional costs and increase the risk that one of the essential parts of the jigsaw, the, the sanction by one of the relevant courts, will not come through and uh, that uh, the entire restructuring might, be, might come to naught. So parallel proceedings, a powerful tool if and when that is appropriate on the facts, but certainly most of the developments in restructuring law over the last 150 years, the, the focus by restructuring lawyers with international practices on modified universalism, on dealing with all of the, of the, of the obligations which need to be restructured in one proceeding, the whole motivation has come from the risks which underlie parallel proceedings and which you have identified. And we'll have a discussion later about modified universalism in the context of Gibbs. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. So for our purposes, it's probably best to delineate between outbound recognition and inbound recognition, with the UK as the reference point for that. Um, that's to say recognition of English processes abroad and recognition of foreign processes in England. So let's dig into those a little bit. So starting with outbound recognition, It'd be great if you could take take us through some of the bases on which a UK scheme slash restructuring plan is recognised in the US and, and the EU. And some are also, after that, some of the differences in approach between recognition of a scheme and a UK restructuring plan. Yes, certainly. Let's start with the US, because that, in this context, is the simpler jurisdiction. Since 2005, the US Bankruptcy Court has incorporated a Chapter 15, which in turn is the domestic implementation in the US of the ANSATROL model law on insolvency. Under the US implementation of the ANSATROL model law, the US applies a generous test to recognize, in this instance, both schemes and restructuring plans. Uh, the US courts are, gen they, as a as a general rule, they tend to be sophisticated, they tend to be internationalist and universalist, and they tend to pay a lot of attention to what English courts have done. And so as a matter of course, as a general matter, US courts give recognition and due effect in the US to UK schemes of arrangement and restructuring plans. Um, and in this respect, there is no material difference between schemes and restructuring plans. Just as a matter of principle, the US court would proceed under Chapter 15 of the US Bankruptcy Court. There may be additional issues which arise under restructuring plans by virtue of the very powerful cross-class cram-down tool which is provided by the UK restructuring plan proceeding in circumstances where there is no ready comparator under the UK scheme of arrangement proceeding. We'll get to that. But as a general matter, 
there would be no difference between uh, schemes of arrangement and restructuring plans being recognised by the US bankruptcy court. And of course, the cross-class cram-down power is kind of something which is just an iteration of the of an equivalent power under the US Bankruptcy Act, right? Indeed, yes. Different principles apply to the court's exercise of that power. But yep. Yes, it's a, something, in fact, you could say was first formally given statutory force by the US Bankruptcy Court itself. Now, the EU position is more complicated and in some ways more interesting. Things can get very complicated very quickly here. So with apologies to those of your listeners who are familiar with this part of, of the law, I'm going to keep things very simple at the risk of some fall in accuracy. So let me talk about the structure with which we were familiar before Brexit was consummated. In this structure, there were two EU instruments, the insolvency regulation and what was referred to as the Brussels regulation. The insolvency regulation applied in relation to any insolvency proceeding, which in this instance, the UK authorities would have had annexed, that is listed in Annex A to the EU insolvency regulation. In that annex, the UK had not expressly listed the scheme of arrangement and the restructuring plan was only introduced in 2020 when Brexit was only a few months from being finalised and consummated. So there was no question of having the restructuring plan proceeding listed in the annex. But there were administrations and CVAs were included in annex A. Administrations and CVAs. In fact, interestingly, in my view, the proceeding which was listed was, um, I can't remember, compositions, arrangements in an insolvency context, something like that. And I would say there was a good argument for saying that a scheme of arrangement in relation to an insolvent debtor would, notwithstanding the UK government's express intention to keep the scheme out of the process, on the correct interpretation of what had been listed in Annex A, the scheme of arrangement in relation to an insolvent debtor fell within Annex A. But that was absolutely not the consensus view of the restructuring lawyers practicing in the UK. Now, if it was the case that the company was already in administration, which as you rightly note, was listed in Annex A, then there was an argument that a scheme proposed in relation to such a company would be a composition, um, a judicial composition for the purpose of the the insolvency regulation and was entitled to automatic recognition across the remaining 27 members of the European Union. I think that is a good argument, um, but that argument was not tested. The alternative was the Brussels regulation. The Brussels regulation allocated jurisdiction amongst EU courts and then provided for the order or judgment given by the competent court to obtain EU-wide recognition and effect. However, and importantly, the so-called bankruptcy exception to the Brussels regulation, a provision in the Brussels regulation, provided 
that the Brussels regulation only applied to so-called civil and commercial matters. That is a term of art in EU law. And civil and commercial matters do not include compositions, judicial um, arrangements and uh, analogous proceedings. Initially, when asked to determine this question, so back in 2006, the English High Court had decided that the scheme of arrangement fell out with the ambit of the Brussels regulations because the scheme of arrangement was at its heart a judicial composition. And I can see the sense and power of that view. However, in Rodin's talk in 2011, Mr. Justice Briggs, in my view, undertook a more sophisticated and, if I may respectfully say so, more accurate analysis and decided that a scheme of arrangement in relation to a solvent debtor fell within the ambit of the Brussels regulation. He left the question about schemes of arrangement in relation to insolvent debtors and even more so the question about data which was subject to a, a proper insolvency proceeding, he left those questions expressly undecided. But the English court had operated on the assumption that the Brussels regulation would apply to a sanction order in relation to a scheme of arrangement and then had dis had considered whether there was jurisdiction in relation to the particular scheme that the court was considering. And so that was the basis on which the assumption was that a scheme of arrangement sanctioned by the English court would obtain recognition through one route or another across the EU. Upon Brexit being finalised, we fell out both of the insolvency regulation uh, uh, arrangement and also of the Brussels regulation framework and so we had to fall in line with all other so-called third countries and so the EU law does not provide us with any assistance. We are now, when I say we, I mean an English court order sanctioning a scheme or a restructuring plan. That order is now at the mercy of the 27 different domestic regimes of the 27 remaining EU jurisdictions. And we have to, so we have to take our chances whether under the relevant domestic regime in circumstances where you need to have the scheme or the restructuring plan recognized in one or more of those 27 countries, whether the English order would be given recognition. And this is where the difference between the scheme and the restructuring plan may be very relevant. In a case called Gate Group, in which I acted for the, the debtor company, together with my esteemed um, South Square colleague, Felicity Tobe Casey, Ms. Justice Zekeroli uh, decided that the restructuring plan proceeding constituted an insolvency proceeding for the purposes of the EU framework. That is to say, he decided that if a relevant EU instrument applied, the 
UK restructuring plan would not constitute a civil and commercial, civil or commercial matter, but instead would constitute a judicial composition, etc., of the sort which would have fallen out with the ambit of the Brussels regulation. So that means that the UK lawyer, and let's focus on the English lawyer, has two different tools in their armory. Depending on the jurisdiction in which an English restructuring is sought to be recognized, and depending on the expert evidence that the proposer of the restructuring receives as to the domestic law of the, of the jurisdiction, it's possible for the scheme of arrangement to be proposed if the debtor is not insolvent and if the English court were to sanction that scheme of arrangement, to seek to have that scheme of arrangement recognized as not an insolvency proceeding. Or alternatively, if the debtor can meet the requirements, the gateway requirements of the restructuring plan proceeding, which basically means showing that you are or would be severely financially distressed and serious financial difficulties, the restructuring plan can be proposed. And then if the English court sanctions that restructuring plan, the domestic insolvency law of the EU jurisdiction in which recognition is to be sought can be invoked. So the fact that there are two different regimes, one of which is and the other is not an insolvency proceeding, in my view, adds to the range of tools which are available to the English restructuring uh, community. Right. Sorry, that was a very lengthy. No, no, that's ex extremely helpful. Um, and I agree with all of that. I mean, I don't know whether it's worth just touching on, and I don't know whether you were kind of discussing Rome 1 there without referring specifically to Rome 1, but there is also a discussion to be had around conceiving of schemes as being variations to underlying contractual obligations. And obviously, Rome 1 was retained following Brexit, and Rome 1 is kind of a part of EU law. So that's obviously also a route. Very good. Thank you. So Rome 1, in this instance, for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with it, provides relevantly that the obligation governed by the law of a particular jurisdiction may be amended or extinguished under the same law. So under Rome 1, if the obligations sought to be restructured are governed by English law, then an English proceeding, such as a scheme or restructuring plan, would be, so the argument goes, recognized in the EU jurisdictions under Rome 1 and would obtain recognition in, in that way. Um, my view is that this is an overly simplistic understanding of the ambit of Rome 1. The material scope of Rome 1 is again restricted to civil and commercial matters. And as I've already mentioned, that is a term of art in EU law. It would be fine for restructuring of the obligations of a solvent debtor to be pressed subject to Rome 1. But I'm not convinced 
that Rome 1 would be of assistance to a proper in, in a properly advised EU court because of the restriction to civil and commercial matters. And for similar reasons, I think that in the context of a restructuring plan, it is open to question whether Rome 1 would be of assistance. Having said that, and this may seem a bit pessimistic, Rome 1, as we know, effectively codified what was the domestic law of applicable law in many important EU jurisdictions. So, as I've already mentioned, we are now at the mercy of domestic EU laws, so the domestic laws of EU jurisdictions, and it is possible and indeed likely that for the same reason that Rome 1 may be of assistance, that is to say, the law says that the governing law of the obligation may also amend that obligation. For the same, by the same logic, under the domestic laws of the relevant jurisdictions, we may be able to obtain recognition. Same should apply, basically. Yes. Um, that's, that's really helpful. Um, we can probably be a bit quicker now on, on this part, um, but let's talk about inbound recognition. So if you could just kind of walk us through a little bit around how, in a post-Brexit world, how the English courts go about recognising foreign processes. Again, uh, we could, could talk about the EU and the US, I think. Okay, so um, English courts have been, they have, so I can modestly claim that the English courts invented universalism um, in the Victorian period, uh, even before that. Um, and they continue to show great comity and internationalism. And under both statute and common law, there are ways of recognizing foreign restructurings. Let me talk about the, the two most important statutory mechanisms. There is the cross-border insolvency regulations, which are the UK implementation of the ancestral model law which provides a ready basis on which to recognize the proceeding, the foreign restructuring proceeding. Though, of course, after Rubin, we know that a restructuring order by a foreign court is not recognizable under the CBIR. And the alternative statutory route, which predates the implementation of the Ancetron model law, is section 426 of the Insolvency Act, under which certain jurisdictions, um, referred to traditionally as the cricket-playing jurisdictions, um, uh, an order made by a court in one of these jurisdictions would be recognized and assisted uh, by, the, by the English court. And then there is the residual common law power that a court may have to give certain types of assistance to a foreign insolvency proceeding. So there are those three routes. Um, the change brought about by Brexit has been that by virtue of having fallen out of the automatic recognition framework, the English court is no longer bound by the decisions made by a competent EU court in a different EU jurisdiction. The English court has discretion um, and, and the 
English court will make decisions on the basis of the application of the English domestic law. But um, in those circumstances, it's much more likely than not that a competent decision made by a competent EU court providing for the restructuring of debt would be recognized and given effect in England. And that's the same is true um, for US uh, court orders and so on. The important exception is the rule in Gibbs, which is this really anomalous rule of English law, which in fact, which is which takes its name from a judgment given by the Court of Appeal, English Court of Appeal in 1890, I believe, but which actually goes back to a decision of the English court in 1800. Um, under that rule, the English court will refuse to recognize a foreign restructuring of debt which is governed by English law. So in my view, completely duplicitously and hypocritically, while expecting a English restructuring of debt governed by a law which is not English law, the English court withholds recognition from a foreign order, no matter how competent it may otherwise be, of English law governed debt. Um, uh, so that would be the main wrinkle there. And in those circumstances, we in fact end up with what we discussed, which is the necessity to have parallel proceedings, no matter how ruinous such proceedings may be in relation to a debtor whose assets and affairs would best, most efficiently be dealt with in a different jurisdiction, let's say in New York. Nevertheless, because of the rule in Gibbs, if there are dissenting creditors, the likelihood is that they, that the debtor would have to come and bear the expense and delay of an English restructuring process. So those are the issues in relation to incoming inbound uh, um, recognition. Right, thank you. Um, it's probably worth just saying that in relation to the ruling Gibbs, the legal community is very divided between people who are very pro it and people who are very against it. I sense that you're quite against it. What gave that away? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but it, just just to mention that, and um, in the interest of being an unbiased podcast, but I, I will we'll touch on Article X. Actually, I think now it probably makes sense for us to move on to to that and a discussion around Gibbs and the, the future of Gibbs in the context of of Article X. So. The UK Insolvency Service this year has given some thought to the implementation of two additional answer trial model laws. One, the model law on enterprise group insolvency will, as we understand it, be implemented uh, in due course. The other is a model law on recognition and enforcement of insolvency related judgments and specifically a provision within it, which is referred to as Article X, um, has caused a bit of concern. Um, in the restructuring and insolvency community. Probably makes sense at this stage to, if you would, wouldn't mind briefly describing Article X and pros and cons, and um, maybe touching on Gibbs and kind of how you, how you see that kind of unfolding, um, depending on kind of how Article X is approached. Certainly. I have a bit of a personal um, understanding of the, the genesis of Article X because I was the head of the World Bank delegation to Working Group 5 of Ancetron. And after that, I became an independent expert advisor to the UK delegation once I stepped down from my World Bank position in 2013. And 
so I, I was, as it were, in the room when the UK Supreme Court decided Rubin. And from the point of view of the authors of the model law, the UK Supreme Court was wrong because the authors of the model law always expected and anticipated that final orders made in insolvency proceedings would be recognized under the model law. And so it was a shock to the author group, to Ancetral, working group five, uh, to find that this highly respected court, which had invented, as I've already said, modified universalism, which is at the root of and at the heart of the Ancetral model law, that that court had refused to recognize the final order of a, a very competent court, the New York court in the, in the context of Rubin. So the Rubin problem, as it came to be known in Working Group 5, was what led the working group with uh, authorization from Ancetral itself, the commission itself, to embark on the formulation of what came to be the new Ancetral model law on insolvency-related judgments and orders. And as that model law was being negotiated, one of the options provided was Article X. And this article was intended to enable jurisdictions which had already implemented the existing model law, the original 1997 model law, to remove any doubt created by the UK Supreme Court's Rubin judgment to enact as possibly as part of their domestic implementation of that 1997 model law, Article X, so as to remove any such doubt. And Article X, to paraphrase, provides that uh, it's, it's possible for the court in the state which has implemented Article X to recognize and give effect to a foreign final order in uh, an insolvency proceeding. So this would be a restructuring order relevantly to our discussion. So that's what Article X provides. Now, the insolvency service, as you say, has consulted and there are various arguments against Article X and those arguments have appealed to the insolvency service at least to the extent that the insolvency service has said that it needs to think more and consult more before Article X is implemented in UK law, if indeed it is implemented at all. And there are a variety of arguments, and I have my views about how, how seriously to take those arguments. I, I, I do think that the chances of a person accepting a point when they think a part of the pay packet depends on them not accepting that point, those chances are very slim. And I feel that there is a view, wrong in my view, insecure view amongst parts of the City of London restructuring law community that if Article X were to be implemented, and in particular if the rule in Gibbs were to be overturned, then fewer foreign debtors would come to London to restructure. And they think that a part of their business would dissipate. 
Now, there are a variety of reasons why I think this is. This shows lack of confidence in the very high quality of restructuring services that are provided in the city of London, including, I have to say, by the very people who are insecure about losing part of their job. So I, I think that we have companies rewriting their debt obligations together with their, uh, with their relevant creditors to make English law the governing law precisely so that they can come to London to make use of the restructuring services and in particular also to make use of the outstanding world-beating judges that we are blessed with. Um, the abolition of the rule in Gibbs and, and the adoption of Article X, in my view, would not materially affect the pay packets of the, the lawyers who are fighting so hard to maintain the rule in Gibbs and, and not to allow implementation. Now, that is a cynical view. Let me give the most charitable interpretation of the, the resistance to the implementation of Article X. The most charitable interpretation is that Article X is an overly blunt tool and that it does not cater to the complicated issues of the law of applicable law, which in the view of, of, of those who, who take this, this position need to be dealt with. And these are sorts of points about if there is a secure debt, what law should govern amendments to the property law governing the security interest if it's a proprietary security. Those are sorts of law of applicable law rules which these people think need to be answered. Those questions have to be answered before you implement something like Article X. So I, I don't think this is these are good arguments. I think there are ways in which the English courts have long dealt with these sorts of questions just because these questions were expressly dealt with under the EU regulation is in and of itself no reason why we should pretend that the English court does not have the sophisticated principles which it has developed over over you know decades, perhaps over a century, to deal with these sorts of um, scenarios. There is a good argument, which is this. If you have an obligation on English courts to recognize a decision made by a foreign court, then you are going to open, expose to risk. You're going to expose the stakeholders to the risk of corrupt or incompetent or politically driven courts in certain jurisdictions or just unsophisticated courts who do not have a, a proper understanding of the sophisticated complex restructurings which might be called for, you expose the stakeholders to the risk of a decision by those courts and then you require the English court to give effect, recognition effect in England to the decisions restructuring those obligations. And the argument goes that the rule in Gibbs in particular provides certainty to stakeholders and confidence that the English law governed obligations would only be dealt with in England. Now, there are two points to be made here. One is that I accept that court, and I saw for myself as part of my World Bank work, where I worked with the governments of several 
a couple of dozen different um, countries. It's without doubt the case that courts differ in integrity and in competence and sophistication. We are particularly blessed with our courts as a general matter. And it would be utterly unsurprising if parties wish to benefit from English courts in relation to, in this context, restructuring. However, the problem with the argument that I outlined for you is that it only tangentially connects with the rule in Gibbs. So the rule in Gibbs says English law governed obligations can only be restructured under English processes, restructuring processes. Now, suppose that English law governed obligations are restructured by one foreign court outside England. The debtor does not have any assets in England. And nobody is going to come to England to seek to enforce any obligations. Instead, they go to a different foreign court. And the different foreign court gives recognition effect to the restructuring order in relation to English law debt. The rule in Gibbs does not protect the stakeholders. So the rule in Gibbs only protects stakeholders in those instances where recognition is necessary in England. In those circumstances, the rule in Gibbs ensures that those parties come to England. Now, my question is this, why should English law say to English judges, be very wary of corrupt or incompetent or unsophisticated foreign courts, so long as the debt which has purportedly been restructured is governed by English law, and now the parties have come to you seeking recognition in England of the foreign courts restructuring order. But don't worry about that corruption or incompetence if the debt is not governed by English law. Surely, whenever an English court is asked to recognize a foreign restructuring order, then irrespective of the governing law, whether or not the governing law of the debt was English law or was not English law, the English court should develop tools by which it can scrupulously assess, scrupulously but cost-effectively assess the competence integrity of the process by which the restructuring Proceeded and by which the court came to make the restructuring order. So, another very lengthy answer, but the point here is this. There is a valid issue in play here, but the rule in Gibbs is not the appropriate response to that valid concern. That valid concern remains unaddressed so long as too many in England, and by that really is meant uh, people in the city of London who think that a part of their paycheck depends on adhering, continuing to adhere to Gibbs, they continue to hold on to Gibbs rather than thinking open-mindedly about how to give the English court the tools by which any foreign restructuring, irrespective of the governing law, can be assessed by the English court in a cost-effective way before the English court decides whether to give recognition in England to that restructuring order. Thank you, Reza. Thank, thanks for drawing out complex and nuanced arguments. That was extremely insightful and, and really helpful. I, I particularly like the angle around actually it's kind of priced into the debts that you have. That protection of the ruling Gibbs um, is, is quite an interesting angle. 
I agree that um, the rule in Gibbs is priced in to existing debt because the parties would have uh, taken into account that any restructuring would take place subject to the rule in Gibbs and therefore would likely take place in the English court. That's very important. Of course, in the debate about whether the rule in Gibbs should be abolished, this argument should not, though it does, play any role. Nobody is proposing that the abolition of the rule in Gibbs, were it to occur, should have retroactive effect. Therefore, nobody is proposing that the already priced in effect of this rule may be upset. Those who advocate for the overturning of the rule in Gibbs, myself included, advocate for it on a prospective basis. And of course, once, if it were abolished, then it would no longer be priced in. Different pricing uh, strategies would come into play, but the rule in Gibbs would drop out of the picture. So existing expectations would not be upset. Brilliant. I think that's, that covers everything. So Thank you, Riz, for coming in to talk to us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, it's been really illuminating, and I hope that our listeners also have a, a greater sense of some of the mechanisms underlining cross-border recognition. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say, Freddie. No, no, I think that, that's all, really, and it was extremely, extremely helpful and very insightful. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We love hearing your feedback. So if you have any thoughts on today's podcast, do reach out to us on team at ninefin.com. Check in next week to hear the latest on US markets with our colleague Will Cager-Smith. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then.